Welcome everybody back to the Rooted and Edified show. I'm your host, Katty Lias, and you are joining us for a special, special episode today titled Cults, What You Need to Know. And to join us to shed some light on this really important topic, we have an amazing woman of God, Anna Kitko. Happy dance for you. Hey. <laughs> very, very happy to have you on the show. I think this is a super important topic. But before we introduce Anna Kitko a little bit more and jump into our questions, I want to tell you a little bit more about this podcast. This podcast is sponsored by Beautifully Rooted, which is a Christian mental health and education corporation. And this podcast, The Rooted and Edified Show, is a fun-loving, Bible-believing, no-facade Christian worldview show for both men and women, where we go over the four T's, which are testimonies, topics, talents, and theology, of course. We want to help you grow deeper in your relationship with Christ and stronger in your walk. And if we can get a few laughs on the side, I'm 100% happy with that. As a reminder, we put out both an audio podcast and a video one, so whichever your preference, there's something available to you. If you're excited about what we're doing here, you really like this show, and you want to figure out how can I help the show, feel free to contact us through our website, which is www.beautifullyrooted.com which is B-E-Y-O-U-T-I-F-U-L-L-Y, rooted.com, and we would love to hear from you. So now let me introduce to you Anna Kitko, an amazing woman of God. She holds a Master's of Arts in Biblical Studies from Reformed Theology Seminary, is under supervision for her license as a clinical pastoral therapist in Tennessee, and is near completion of a Master's of Science in Psychology of Coercive Control from the University of Salford, Manchester, UK. Her areas of specialty include Christian apologetics, yeah, for that, neurochemistry, cults, and new religions, PTSD, and associated disorders in religious environments, and practical theology in culturally taboo subjects. She speaks internationally on the intersection of psychology and theology, as well as the anatomy of persuasion. Now, when we say all these disorders, now you're speaking my language. I love it. And if you don't know what apologetics is, go ahead and check out one of our former episodes, the 22nd one, with Katia and Rosario Pavey on apologetics, knowing what you believe and why. Okay, Anna, you, we are so happy that you are here with us. You have such a vast knowledge, and we love even just having a chance to pick your brain. So thank you so much for that. So if you could just tell us a little bit more about yourself and what you do, anything that you have coming up that you want to let us know, and we'll jump right in after that. Well, it's my very great privilege. Thank you for having me, even though I'm a little bit under the weather and I'm sipping on broth. I love going on shows like this because it's really wonderful to just have a raw, honest conversation. And that part is really important for the general public to be able to have access to. My background, so my dad's a lighthouse keeper. That's kind of cool. I grew up on a, an island in the Atlantic off the coast of Florida. And I took my background uh, quite a bit for granted. My parents were both Christian missionaries and I did some mission work as well. And so I just, there were lots of like just wonderful, healthy family life things that I just kind of, I just enjoyed. And I didn't realize how rare they were until I got into my field. And I was on my way to becoming a neurosurgeon. That's what I wanted to be when I grew up. I had a full ride scholarship to do that. I graduated from Cambridge when I was 17. Wow. See, that's why we wanted to pick your brain. Because well, you were going to become a neurosurgeon, you see? Maybe. Yeah, no, yeah, maybe. Yeah, and I was just like, the Lord's calling me to do brain surgery. And basically, over the course of the beginning of my college career at the University of Florida, 
he, he corrected me and that it was, yes, it was brain surgery he had in mind. It just wasn't that kind of brain surgery. And so through a course of a bunch of really wonderful providential things, I ended up going to seminary instead of medical school and started merging the idea, the notion of psychology and theology coming into an intersection and having my work primarily sit there to serve people who have come out of damaging cult groups and the families that have lost loved ones to them. Because at the time when I was getting started, there wasn't anybody to help me and I had a loved one in a damaging cult. So that's kind of my background. Thank you for that. I am ready for this topic. This is such an important topic. I know so many people are going to learn so much. And really, I think through this podcast, some people and through what you're going to be sharing, I think some people are going to be very surprised to find out that they also have loved ones who are in cults, or maybe that they might start also be walking into one themselves. So we definitely want to jump in. But first, I want to know what drew you to study this and how did God call you to this specialty? Yeah. Um, so in high school, I worked with several students who were Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons in my high school. And I just noticed I had never really paid very close attention to these groups before. They kind of were like, in my mind, they were just kind of like odd denominations of Christianity. I didn't really think anything of it. I heard weird stories, but I didn't, you know, I knew these people and they were functionally normal. So I kind of, you know, ignored them. And um, one day I was comparing my Bible to a New World Translation that my buddy was carrying. And it was like, this Bible's different than mine. Why is that? That's odd. And for me, the alteration of the scriptures is like, it's something that gets under my skin and like nothing else. You know, like you have the one pet peeve that you just don't, you do not touch the scriptures. You do not alter them. Like that's like extra blasphemy. I mean, we're talking like way up there for me. <laughs> and this was altered. And I was like, all right, either my Bible's wrong or this Bible's wrong because they can't both be right. And that kind of plummeted me into studying really in depth with the Jehovah's Witnesses. I had um, several, well, I had several publishers coming to my house every week, all the way through high school, and then all the way to a district overseer actually coming to the house. Wow. Do, yeah. So, I mean, we're talking really in depth over the course of several years. Same thing with Mormonism, but Mormonism was a lot easier to pick apart just in the sense that as soon as you go to the Book of Mormon and you read the introduction, you're like, well, something's up. You know, this is a lot, it's a lot less covert, I would say, on the on the alterations of things. And their prophets are speaking fairly regularly and with odd enough prophecies that it stands out like a sore thumb, whereas the Jehovah's Witnesses are a lot more secretive in that regard. And you don't get to see access to the really odd stuff like Jesus coming to earth invisibly in 1914 until you're well into it. And so that part really bothered me. And then through the course of really working with a lot of these students, I realized there was nowhere for me to go. I didn't have anybody to go to to help mentor me or to study under. And I was working with the Christian Apologetics and Research Ministry, Matt Slick's stuff, because he had a bunch of articles on the Jehovah's Witnesses and had done some work with them. And so I got to talk back and forth with them for a while. And I realized I just, I was like, there's nobody to help these people. And at the end of my high school career, I was taking care of, and I say taking care of, I was regularly speaking with on a therapeutic level, even though I didn't know that that's what I was doing yet. Several families who had lost loved ones, the Jehovah's Witnesses, or they had been disfellowshipped and never didn't have any access to them anymore. And I was like, these people have nowhere to go and I have to do something. And so that's kind of how that, that, that calling and a lot of murder that the Lord did to, to swap out classes and to 
make money available and just and, and unimaginably gracious things that he did for me lined everything up. And functionally speaking, I then have, and you'll see in my background, I have like two, two lines of thoughts that are simultaneous, the clinical mental health side and the seminary side with apologetics. And that's because I don't know what else to do. You have to do both in order to try to merge the two. And that's why we have a clinic here in town. I'm in Maryville, Tennessee. We have a clinic that integrates Christian theology and clinical therapy for cult victims. Perfect. I 100% support the therapeutic world and the apologetic world coming together. Yes. Praise the Lord for that. Praise the Lord. Mental wellness is the Bible. So that's, yeah. it's not separate. We love that. So thank you for that. Now let's get on the same page because this word cult is such a scary word for so many people. I think we've seen a lot of things on TV, high profile cases. Maybe they've read things on them. We've seen them in movies and they're usually things that include some sort of uh, include death or sexual perversion or just really strong things, some sort of delusion type phenomena. I'm not sure, are all cults like that? Or no. can you let us know what exactly is a cult? Yeah, so it, this is hard because a cult by definition is just a spinoff of an already existing um, religion. Functionally speaking, that's all cult really has ever meant historically. So for a long time, Christianity was a cult of Judaism. Well, what's happened since then, and with the emergence of a lot of really, really damaging, and we say damaging, cult groups, meaning people have died. These these are the guys like, you know, the Jim Jones, Jonestown type scenarios where you're getting whole cultural shifts and vocab changes like drinking the Kool-Aid and things like that. These are these are major cults that get a lot of um Oh my goodness. Everybody that just uses the term that they use the term drinking the Kool-Aid. Yes. Just got scared. Yes, exactly. And so we we started to have more of a breakdown. It's like, what do we mean by cults? Like, do we have a theological cult, meaning that they're not hurting anyone that we can tell, but they are teaching a theology that's aberrant or really, really dissimilar from an existing religion, but still claiming that they're part of the religion. So you get Bible-based cults, for example, like um, the Latter-day Saints and the Jehovah's Witnesses. And then you have you have coercively controlled cults and coercion means they're being actively lied to by leadership. And this is when we start tracking things like how much of their behavior is being controlled, how much information is being controlled in the group. What is the thinking process of these individuals? How much is that being controlled? Are they, are they learning things like thought stopping mechanisms? Are they free? And you're, you're functionally measuring how free these individuals are to move in and around that um, religious environment. And that's called a bite model. And that's normally how we determine whether or not a cult is damaging or not. It's how much control do they have over those four categories, behavior, information, thinking, and emotions. Thank you. Since you've had the privilege of being invited to see the real deal, ins and outs of the most intimate parts of people's lives through counseling, that's definitely something that I believe that is a privilege that the Lord has allowed. A therapist, a biblical counselor, really anybody with the gift of wisdom or discernment that the Lord has provided to be able to be invited into their intimate, most vulnerable areas of their lives where they don't have any facade and they just bear everything in front of you. So considering that, I imagine that you've seen the real deal, the insides of what might entice somebody to join these cults. And I just wanted to gather some of your thoughts on that. So would you let us know, please, what would drive someone to join a cult? Is there something enticing about them? If so, what would that be? 
It's mostly, a, I, I think, at least, and this is repeated with my clients a lot, it's that they didn't have any type of family unit, mm. really, or social unit that they were very happy with. And the cult provided them with what they were missing. And so the rest of the baggage that comes along with it kind of is, is seen as superfluous initially. And a lot of that information is introduced over time. It's not it's not given to you up front. And you can accept information that that is difficult to process in small doses over time a lot easier than you can with like the entire transparent unit of the cult being open right there at the door right which is part of the reason why they do that the cult groups and these are damaging cult groups but it is some cult groups in general will focus on the most vulnerable in the the community that they find themselves in. it's why they set up on college campuses interesting yeah, oh yeah. You only need three things to make somebody mentally vulnerable. You need a, a lack of sleep, right? A circadian rhythm that's been thrown off recently. You need a poor diet and you need removal from a family unit. And a college student is perfect for that. That's why college recruits aren't the norm for these cult groups. Now, are there specific people who recruit to gather some of these people? Are they just throwing out a big net and seeing who comes? Or do you think that they can really pick out who seems extra needy or who lacks family or is there something that's going on with that they pick up on? It's normally both. So they'll cast a wide net initially. So maybe on a college campus, let's say um, the International Church of Christ, that's a pretty well-known cult in um, or the Orlando, it's based in Orlando area. So they'll cast a wide net and kind of see who comes or like the Hare Krishnas will throw out free, a free yoga class and see who comes. And then they'll, they'll note if that you came by yourself were you crying? You know, did anything touch you as far as like um, emotionally in the, in the session? What did you talk about why you were there? And then they'll, they'll functionally group you with someone who can disciple you personally. This is why the vast majority of people who have left cults will report that they were invited by a friend or they attended because um, a group in their dorm sent them or a family member was already in the, in the cult. And this, so there, there is, there's, there's an element of there's an in here when you're vulnerable. And that's probably the, the fastest way for you to be seeking some type of emotional relief from wherever you are, um, either loneliness or neglect, something along those lines. Uh, we tell our students on campus all the time, but look up you know, take, take your earbuds out and look up because one of the things that'll happen is they'll, they'll wait for you to just be by yourself hood up kind of thing. And that's when they'll come over and try to recruit you because you're, it's less likely that somebody's going to intervene if they know something about your group already, or they know that you're a damaging cult. We see that with the world mission society, church of God, a lot here. They're very, very, very aggressive and enough people know about them that they'll intervene on behalf of the person in front of them. Wow. That is very, very interesting. And do you believe that they understand that they are wrong? They have, they don't understand God the way he is, or do you believe that they're duped and are trying their best in their, in their delusion in whatever state the devil has induced? Some, some, a little bit of A and a little bit of B in the sense that a lot of times you're lied to in order to get to these initial sessions. That's fairly normal. One of the signs that you're in a cult that I'll ask people if they're like, well, how do you know I'm in a cult, whether or not I'm in a cult? And the question is, if you knew everything that you know now, when you first entered the group, would you have stayed? Because if the answer is no, the likelihood that you're in something that's a little bit too controlling is is 
very high. That being said, once in though, there is normally a great deal of fear mongering and fear is a very, very powerful emotion. And it's a very controlling emotion. If they can posture themselves as the answer to all of the life's ails and they can set themselves up as like, we, we see the world clearly in the way that it is. And this is the way that, that we're going to be handling things. And we're going to functionally, and they won't say this outright, but they'll set a kind of us versus them sort of posture and an elitism were the real Christians, were the real believers, were the real followers. And wouldn't you expect the real followers to be persecuted? And so that when they go out and somebody says to them, hey, isn't that a really damaging cult group? They go, oh, I'm being persecuted. And that reconfirms what the guru has taught. I see. And you're referring to the people who recruit? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. The ones, the ones that are the recruiters are normally the ones that are the most abused they spend every moment of their day tracked and their obedience level is normally graded on their ability to recruit. Those guys are the ones that are the saddest for me because they've forfeited the vast majority of their life to this group. Yeah. Wow. When you're speaking about what the recruiters pick up on and how they cast their net and they see kind of who stays or they see here's the characteristics of this person here, probably they're more alone, probably they fall along this line and they kind of see who stays. It reminds me of a bad relationship. My goodness. You know, I, I tell people that everyone dates the people that are not good partners. Everyone has been on a date with that person who has a personality disorder, who is terrible in relationships, who is completely immature or is narcissistic, whatever it is. Everyone dates those kind of people. The difference is when some people see the red flags, they walk away. When others draw closer. So it's just very interesting and they stick, they stick it out. So these people date a whole bunch of people, but they're, they're going to stick with who sticks it out with them, right? So it just sounds like a, a really terrible relationship. So speaking of red flags and signs that people might not walk away from, if somebody wanted to know, man, am I in a cult right now? Am I walking into something that's a little, that's not right? What might be some red flags for them? I know you mentioned a couple right now, but I wanted to see if you can kind of bring it out and we can group them together so everyone can hear that. Yeah, a lack of transparency. So that's a really big one. And when you ask a question, is the question actually answered? And I mean, actually answered. And are you allowed to press? And are you allowed to press? And are you allowed to press? You should never be taught that this is, this is, that's an unacceptable line of reasoning. They should be willing to answer questions. You should have access to the leader. That's a really, really big one. I'm, I, and I laugh a little bit inside because it implies in some of the, some of the really mega church uh, environments. Yeah. That this, that could easily turn into a cult and often does. And it's just cults of personality. Now that doesn't mean every mega church is certainly, but one of the things that we look for is do, does the congregant, does the sheep have access to the shepherd? If the answer is no, you're pretty vulnerable because you have no knowledge of what's going on. Are you, is there an accountability? So is there normally with cult groups, it's a pyramid type framework hierarchy and there's somebody at the top and the only person, the one person that's at the top is the prophet or the guru or somebody who has special knowledge. And the only person they're accountable to is God himself. And they don't have anybody else around them that's a huge red flag a huge 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 red flag because that means there's nobody to check their sin and their narcissism and their their degrading regard for their congregants things like that so really you need to have access to the shepherd that's very very important and then finally just one of the things that happens regularly is do you have access to the internet and i know this sounds odd in this age with everybody with smartphones but the vast majority of cult groups cut off technology 
And they do that so that you can't Google, is this a cult? And find out what other people have said and read about other people's testimonies about being abused, you know, physically, mentally, sexually, the whole nine yards. And they do that specifically to try to make it so that they do appear to be the right group. So any group that tells you don't, don't Google us, um, you Google them (laughs) automatically. (laughs) What great pieces of information. Thank you so much. Do they try to isolate people? Oh, very much. Yes. So a group that will, especially if you have family members that are a little bit concerned about your choices, they will try to isolate you from your family unit. That functionally speaking, they will make the cult and the cult as a unit and what it needs, the primary good. And it removes the concept of the individual and the individual's access to the Lord. So that's another big one too, is you do not have access directly to God. You must go through a mediator and that mediator is a human. Um, there's another big red flag. Yeah. Lots of isolation. I know this is going to sound silly, but I'm going to ask it anyway. What is the harm of someone joining a cult? Why is it something that they should leave? Yeah. It, and this is a weird question because I, you know, freedom Thank of religion you. and it is, it's, it's a, it's a good question. Uh, and it's hard to answer because there isn't anything. If we just say, is there anything intrinsically wrong with joining a cult? The answer is no. It's not until we get to the content of the cult that really matters. And that was like a phrase. That was a question. No, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like I, yeah, I'm, I'm already like, what, why would you want to join a cult unless it was giving you something and not taking anything away from you. And I've yet to encounter a cult that's doing that to any, that's actually giving back and serving. And that would be what, what differentiates Bible-based cults from true Christianity is that in Christianity, all the theology is accessible right then and there, as soon as you walk through the door and it's service oriented, we're, we're washing feet. We're not forcing you to wash feet. You know what I mean? Um, So there's that, but on top of that, with a cult group, normally you're being lied to and coercively. So you're being manipulated in order to do the bidding of somebody who's taking advantage of the fact that they wouldn't be able to do it themselves. They need other people to do it for them. And why you would ever want to be enslaved to another human being. I have no idea. I have no idea. I can see how it could be some positive because it gives structure to your life. Maybe if you have a list of things that you can accomplish for the guru and you hit everything on the list, that would feel very, it'd feel comforting. Maybe a security measure. All the codependents are, are like, well, let me see. Yeah. Well, and uh, so yes, there's a lot, there might be a level of comfort there, but it's, it's never worth it because functionally it turns into horrible abuse very quickly. And so I, I would never, I would never recommend it. Let's just say that. And I think a codependent person or a person with codependency never truly wants that type of relationship. They just prefer that than nothing or being rejected. Right. And it's, it's maybe it's better than being alone, but is it really? Because it's like being in a relationship with a narcissist. And we're talking, you know, clinical narcissism where they couldn't possibly ever empathize with anyone that you're just being used all the time. And that couldn't ever be a healthy relationship. And it's taking you out of the world of relationships where you could experience healthy. Like there's just nothing good about it. And I assume that one of the biggest reasons not to join the cult is because it distorts the word. We need to have the truth. What is in the Bible? Are they reading when people are in these cults, do they have access to the real Bible or are they like some of the things like Jehovah Witness or Mormon who have extra things and distorted Bibles? So 
if the if they if I had a representative from each of the major cult groups in America, they would say, "Of course, we have access to the scriptures." And they would be like, "That's it's it's ridiculous that she would even imply otherwise." And the thing is, is that they think they have access to the scriptures, but their scriptures have been altered or their prophets are giving lip service to accessibility, but it's never actually employed. So like with the Mormons, for example, you'll notice that the Bible is rarely referenced at all. Um, only normally when, like if they're pressed on it, it can be, but it's mostly you need to, you need to be praying about the uh, testimony of Joseph Smith and you need to be, you need to be uh, thinking through the book of Mormon specifically with the Jehovah's Witnesses. The New World Translation isn't referenced very often. You're studying what's called a watchtower. And the reference points are given, but you're not expected to read anything in context or do any personal Bible study. In fact, they tell you not to do that in your home and private, that you need access to these men with special knowledge in order to understand your scriptures correctly. So although they would say, I do have access, the the truth is when you ask for more access, you don't get it. <laughs> so it's mo- it's lip service. And yes, that's a huge deal because what these groups are doing is they're claiming to have Christ and then they're separating the individuals from him. And that's a huge problem. What typically motivates someone to leave a cult? What is the change that happens? Normally, and this is the sad part, normally it gets so bad that they would rather face an eternity separated from God, which is normally what the cult is teaching, that outside of the cult is death or hell or something along those lines. They would rather face an eternity than to continue to live in the circumstances that they're living in. Those are the the really, really sad cases and the ones that take the longest to come out. In another case, what ends up happening is a mom gets a kiddo out. This is one of the coolest parts of my job is being able to document how many times this has happened. The moms will end up getting pregnant inside the cult and everything will change, as you know, happens when you become a mom. And suddenly all of the abuse that they were willing to take with themselves, they're watching impact their children and they can't handle it. And suddenly Mama Bear comes out and all the beautiful design of moms. And this is very normal when a cult crumbles is because a mom said, absolutely not. I'm not allowing this for my kid. Um, so that that can be it's, it's a it's an intervention in, in a greater or lesser degree. Then through sickness, sometimes I dealt I dealt with a compound in California. In fact, recently that the way it, everybody got out was because the cult leader died of COVID. So it, yeah, yeah. So in those instances, yeah, they had been completely isolated and cut off on a property, and they had to leave because they had to find food. And they found out that there were grocery stores and everybody was functioning, and they had been lied to. Wow, that's that's another way. Yeah. So I, as far as I can tell, the people, the way people get out is the Lord intervening in their life in a really, really big way by in using the design that he has made inside of humans to go, you know, at some point enough is enough. Amen. Amen. I say very often, you know, when I'm counseling women and dating and who they choose as a partner, I say it really does matter because what they'll do to you, they'll probably do to your children. Those deficits that they have or the difficulties are not just in a relationship with you, but it's also probably going to come out in a relationship with them. And so I tell these women, we, we think when we're in dating, we think about ourselves so much, but we forget that pain in our heart is one thing. We tolerate it. We can t- take a lot. But when it comes to your kid's heart, that's a whole nother level of pain. When your kid has pain that you can't do too much about, well, it makes you question things for yes. sure. Now, how hard is it for someone to leave these cults? Depending on upon the level of control, 
it's very difficult because what cults will end up doing is replacing every single bit of freedom that you have as an individual. So you'll become dependent on them. They normally expect a great deal of financial accountability, which means you're signing away everything that would give you the ability to leave, including vehicles, personal finances, savings accounts, things like that. That's fairly normal, which means leaving, you are walking out destitute and homeless, which is stops people from leaving for a lot longer than it would normally if they did have access to their finances. That's fairly normal. Again, that sounds like a bad relationship. I mean, this is not an episode on dating, but this just sounds so much like a bad relationship when a woman is waiting to leave because they have no money, they have no... You're exactly anything. right. So in, and in Great Britain, that, that degree, the, the University of Salford degree that was in the, the my bio, we have to train with cult theology and cult coercion. We train alongside human trafficking and domestic violence cases because they're so similar. Yes, I, it really sounds like it. Thank you for that. After being in a cult, what are the common things that people need treatment for and what do they need treatment from? Usually dissociation is really common. They can no longer feel. They don't even know what to do with themselves because they've been so controlled that every single emotional response has been delineated as sin. And so they've just become numb and they've practiced being numb and then they they don't even know what's appropriate or how to emote appropriately anymore. Very common. And then the other one is post-traumatic stress disorder, a a complex form of post-traumatic stress disorder in religious settings. So lots of panic attacks recurring dreams that are problematic, reliving parts of memories. They usually need some form of EMDR at some point. Um, That's fairly common. EMDR is the eye movement, um, desensitization and restabilization. Which is a type of therapy. Yeah, bilateral stimulation of the brain. But post-traumatic stress disorder is the most common. Very, very interesting. And, And you stated it pretty clearly, but just in case someone doesn't know, dissociating, what that means... You're talking about feelings, feeling a separation between their feelings and their body, right? Yes. Essentially, they walk through life as though they're watching themselves in a movie. They're not really connected to themselves and they don't have a way to, to, to feel anymore or grieve or get angry or anything. And they can tell that they're numb, but they don't know how to get back. Do you think there's any difference between that and apathy? There can be apathy. Uh, apathy for me... There's a difference in the sense that apathy, you're not watching yourself as a third party walking. You just are. You just are indifferent. Um, So there's not that separation. Um, But I could be wrong. I don't know. Do you have have significant experience with seeing apathy in in cold cases? I know that that question just came to my head about dissociating versus apathy. But I'm thinking apathy is just kind of you just don't care. I think dissociators just don't feel at all. At times, right? With this one, with this one, it's I. You feel so severely, your body can't handle it. That's a great way to put it. Yeah, yeah. Love that, Anna. Thank you. Now, what type of treatment do you offer them? What's available to the average person? What's available to the average person? I favor cognitive processing therapy. It's a twelve-step therapy to move you through the PTSD. So we isolate exactly what's causing, or we try to isolate what's causing the most significant damage. And then we focus on where there might be lesions in the brain that are triggering that particular event. And we want to move what looks like memory storage in the amygdala, which is the most um, sensitive part of the brain emotionally. We want to, we want to functionally take the memory that's being stored there and, and eliciting that fight or flight response, which is what PTSD normally is. 
Um, and we want to move it to the neocortex, which is a part of your brain that does not process emotion so that you can move completely through the circuit of thought without having that fight or flight, that really awful panicking sensation. And I normally use a, a, a therapy called cognitive processing therapy, which is what is used for military veterans primarily. And we augment it for religious trauma victims. Now, this question just kind of came up to, to my mind right now, but for some people who are Christian and these are kind of new concepts or they're thinking that sounds kind of metaphysical or that sounds kind of something outside of Christianity. Can you speak to that? Because there are some people who believe that EMDR or certain things are not Christian or they can't go get that treatment because they're Christian. Right. So this is a huge problem in America. And part of why, I mean, you and I have talked about this and part of why I did two things, two careers simultaneously is because I didn't know how else to do it. In the realm of biblical counseling, there are five camps, all of whom debate um, exactly what you can and cannot do in a session. And they tend to be averse to clinical interventions. And these are what you have to go get some type of licensure to, to achieve. And you have to study secular medicine. And the reason why they're averse to it is because in secular medical training, you're getting a whole lot of other material that it it's contradictory with the scriptures. And so you're having to, to, to siphon it, right? You're sort of filter through certain things. Like I, I will, I can do some Jungian theory, but I'm going to throw out Freud, you know, things like that, that you would get in your normal psych class. Please do. So yeah. 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 Um, and that's very reasonable, but it takes a lot of time. And so what, what the biblical counseling, and I'm speaking in generalities, I know there are, there are exceptions, but for biblical counseling in general, the, the, the tradition has been to stay completely outside of the clinical realm and to not touch it and to just, just write it completely off as not necessary. And I, I've always had an issue with that because even in the biblical counseling scenarios, the, the protocol with even like profound cases is to refer to the clinicians when you can't handle it. So there's an element of natural revelation that's happening here that is a beautiful gift from God. And we just need to do the work of integrating clinical medicine with biblical theology and making sure that the Bible stands as the ultimate test. So we never contradict the scriptures, but we're free to integrate clinical medicine anywhere that is appropriate. And that's what our clinic does. And just a reminder to those that are out there listening, while I significantly, significantly encourage Christian counseling there are Christians who are in secular positions. I was in a secular position for many years and praise God, we need believers to work in secular fields. Imagine if we had a world where there were no believers in those fields. So there are therapists who are Christian that are in secular fields. Just that, you know, ask them. Yeah, just ask us. Yeah. Ask us. I'm sure that they will answer you directly and be delighted to let you know, yes, I am a Christian. So just ask them. Now, at what point does somebody typically get referred to you, Anna? My, uh, my entire clinic is word of mouth. So I take a lot of uh, family cases because they'll one person will get treatment and they'll, their panic attacks will stop completely. And they'll be like, you have to help my family. So that's normally how this happens. But even on podcasts like this with people are like, hey, I'm in Tennessee. I'd like treatment. No problem. And you just contact, you just look at my name, Anna Kitko, K-I-T-K-O. I'm, I'm the only one out there as far as I know. And get in contact with me and we'll get you some care. At the very least, though, there is a ministry called Be Emboldened with Naomi Wright. And I help mentor for her ministry, which is this, it's it's clinical 
therapists who are working doing non-medical mentoring of individuals who have been in these religious, religiously abusive environments and can't afford care so that we can mentor them and their reintegration to society and give them, you know, their next steps so that they can, they can navigate this very complicated world more easily and without jumping into more abusive scenarios. Do you think there's benefit for someone seeking treatment? Should most people leaving these cults seek treatment or is it really a case by case basis? In, in my experience, everyone leaving a cult should seek treatment. They've been abused and lied to so heavily and for so long, the likelihood that you don't need some type of therapy is extremely low. That being said, if you're a, if you're in a cult group, which is it's normal for cult groups to teach that psychology and the realm of psychology is automatically demonic. And so even going to talk to a therapist, Christian or not, is already a huge step. If you're in a place where it's you're not even able to, to have that therapeutic experience because you're so worried that you're going to have to go to a therapy office in order to do that, there are alternatives. And so I would recommend like the slow, the, the slow mentorship framework, as opposed to jumping straight into something as structured as cognitive processing therapy. Thank you for that. So if we continue along the lines of resources, if somebody wanted to make a referral to you, how would they do that? Uh, make a referral to me would be either through Be Emboldened, and that's just beemboldened.com. And with Naomi Wright, that's the mentoring aspect. And then you can go to roshochristi.org and contact Anna Kitko. Rosho Christie means reason of Christ. It's the apologetics. And maybe you could spell it. Yeah. R-A-T-I-O and then C-H-R-I-S-T-I. You can also go to Integrated Wellness Tennessee. That's our clinic and contact through that, that Gmail address. Um, but that gets bogged down. So I would opt for the Rosho Christie side of things for now. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Now what if somebody... God forbid, is not in the Tennessee area. Is there a place that they can go to find resources in their area? Good question. The, the, my highest recommendation right now, and this is, this is just because I, it's the only one I know of that's out there, the International Cultic Studies Association, ICSA, has a document that keeps up with clinicians who are trained in cults countercult psychology. That does not mean you're going to get a Christian. It's 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 all, all across the board. You'll have to ask each therapist in your area, but at least you'll get an idea of who's the closest to you, who can understand that your story is not odd and will not look at you with judgment and will understand that there's a significant difference between trauma in a religious setting and trauma in non-religious settings. Both terrible, but two different ways of treating. That sounds like a podcast episode topic right there. A full episode. Now, are there any support groups that you know of that are out there that people might be able to look up or would they go through that organization that you were talking about? I would go through the organization first only because they they keep keep it up. And like, I don't, you can always recommend groups like on social media, but those turn into echo chambers and can be a, you know, a mess in and of themselves. So just be careful, but you're free. Go find, you know, type in your community X and then insert whatever cult group. The likelihood that you're going to find somebody is quite high. But if you don't consider starting one, it's one of the best possible things you can do to help all of these religious trauma therapists as well, because we need people to send these individuals to as well to start forming communities and many refugee camps and to, to, to get practice at representing yourself and being an individual and knowing that you're loved by God on an individual level, that you don't need somebody else to give you 
your sense of self and your sense of being and your, your value, like you are completely and totally valued by the Lord Jesus Christ and you always will be. And there's nobody that can take that away from you. Amen. Nobody can add to it or take it away. That's right. Are there any podcasts or books that you recommend if somebody wanted to read up on this topic? On this topic. So Cultish is pretty fun. Cultish is a fairly well-known podcast now. I don't know what's going to happen with them, but I think it's pretty fun to to track that. You have to be careful because if you're only ever listening to cult podcasts, it can start to become a little bizarre and you need to like get out of your own head and like go study your Bible and just study it for itself. You know, like that kind of stuff. Thank you for that warning. That seems like you need to say that real fast, like one of those warnings. Be careful if you're listening to this podcast. Do do not get obsessive about this. This doesn't help anybody, but it is really interesting. And it's nice to see, you know, in the course of my career, cults never being talked about to cults being relatively like normative enough that there's like Netflix documentaries, you know, and people are talking about them. So they're actually watching them and seeing that this is real. That's really important. My friends did write, this is disciple making. I recommend it. It's Ken and Caleb Smith. This doesn't have to do with cult groups, but it will help you not get into one. And that's why I like it. Um, And it's because it takes into account the pre-evangelism stage of discipleship. And that's when cults hit the hardest is the pre-evangelism stage. Because remember, you're being actively lied to and coerced. So um, this will help train you in how not to get stuck in a cult because you'll be able to see it coming. Past that, there's there are lots of secular documentation now for cult groups and studies that you can see. Uh, Margaret Singer is a really wonderful one. Robert J. Lifton is another great one. Combating Cult Mind Control. That's Stephen Hassan. He's famous. All very helpful. Not Christian, but still very helpful. Thank you for that reminder for people to also jump back into your Bible and make sure that you're reading it because I'm sure it's easier to be duped if you don't know what the truth don't is. Know it. That's exactly right. You have to know your scriptures well enough to have those red flags pop up that you're being manipulated. So let's say that people have listened to this podcast, they've heard you, they are just intrigued and you have piqued their interest. They want to jump right in to do what you do, help support people in that are coming out of these cults. What would you recommend education wise? Where would you direct them to go if they wanted to do what you do and or help? Yeah, um, there is a wonderful certification program with the University of Salford in the psychology of coercive control specifically. You don't have to go and get a whole degree if you don't want to. There is a certification program so that you can get trained. So like I highly recommend that to clinicians who are already in practice, for example, because they the the psych the the talk, all the all the all the psychological vocabulary and everything you're gonna be you're gonna be familiar with, but you're it's gonna be tweaked into that specific context so that you can understand how to help people in that way. If you are a lay person, Grabbing combating cult mind control would be really helpful. Getting aware of the cults in your community, that's also extremely helpful to just be aware and then to help other people be aware. Grabbing books like When Narcissism Comes to Church by Chuck DeGroat and Bully Pulpit by Michael Kruger, that'll start helping lay people identify what it's like to have a narcissist. And we're talking clinical narcissism because narcissist is thrown out too easy, like too for your spouse or for someone else that yes definitely yeah if you're getting your psych training from tiktok like maybe maybe turn off tiktok for a minute and by the way not my spouse not my spouse i'm not referring to my spouse i just mean that's often referred to spouses are different people as narcissists if they just treat you <laughs> yeah. wrong or care about yes. themselves they, they you, narcissism just means i don't like you or you're behaving in a way that's self-centered and that's not the definition of narcissism but um, clinical narcissism being able to identify different 
personality disorders in particular that one because pulpits are beacons for narcissists so you have a you have a location where you are going to be heard by a bunch of people every week and you're going to carry the authority of god that's going to call clinical narcissists to the pulpit to try to get in there to try to be heard you need to be able to identify those things so that you can be the canary in the coal mine of your own congregation and go yeah no this is bad this is gross this is he doesn't have any accountability and i don't know why we're talking about this where's the expository teaching on the scriptures why are we hearing so much of his opinions why are why are tithes what tithes being earmarked for things that we didn't vote for things like that why are we writing a check to our pastor's name? Yes. Why? Yes. Yes. Amen. Yeah. Yeah. All that stuff. But like knowing that there really are other people out there who are also saying the same things and you have the backing of people who are professionals who are treating patients in these environments that are like, hey, we need help. Absolutely. And praise Jesus for good pastors. We thank you that you are shepherding your flock well for those that are humble, who are in line with the Holy Spirit. We thank Jesus for you. So thank you for doing that good job. Now, if we jump into our scripture section, do you have a scripture that you have today that you brought that might pertain to what we discussed? Yes, I do. It's my favorite scripture passage, and it's an odd one. And it's Nehemiah 6, 8. It's my favorite scripture passage. And I use it because I used to use it with co-leaders. <laughs> but the passage is, it essentially says... Nothing that you're saying is true. Everything you're saying, you're just making up in your own head. And it's extremely helpful when you have somebody who's trying to lord over you special knowledge from God. And there's, where do you go with that? How do you, how do you, how do you counteract that when they say, well, what, what are the problems with my, with my prophecy? And you can go straight to scripture and go, because you're making it up. And that's obviously there's a lot of investigation that you have to do in order to get there. But once you've arrived there, you have an entire section of scripture that's on it, that exact thing. So contradicting cult leaders with scripture can be really helpful. So yeah, Nehemiah 6.8, my favorite passage. Thank you for that. Now I brought Galatians 1 verses 6 through 9. I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. I think that kind of stands for itself. It's a very strong scripture. I thank you so much, Anna, for today and all the information that you have provided. I think it was super, super helpful. If there was one thing you'd want everybody to remember, what would that be? The Lord Jesus loves you. There has never been a you before now, and there will never be you again. Um, you were put here right now for a very specific reason, and that means that you are needed. That means that the the value that these cult leaders see in you and your usefulness is actually because you are useful and you are valuable and they're just using you. Step out into your independence and love the Lord Jesus and let him love you. Amen. Thank you so much, Anna. I know that people learn so much information. I'm super thankful for you coming on today and for being here. So thank you so much.
Absolutely. It's my very great privilege. And if you need any extra resources or you want to review some of this material clinically, we do have a YouTube channel. It's the Anna Kitko YouTube channel. And you can see some of the clinical lectures and some of the apologetics lectures on this topic if you want more information. Perfect. I'm sure that they're going to run out and subscribe right now. And speaking of subscribing, don't forget, if you liked what you heard, you like what we're doing here, don't forget to subscribe to our channel. We are audio and video, so you can find us on YouTube. You can also find us on all major podcast platforms. Make sure you follow us and give us a like. We know that you're out there and that you are encouraged. That will be super helpful and we appreciate it. So to close us out, would you mind praying for us, Anna, as we walk throughout this week? No problem. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time together. Thank you for using it for our mental nourishment and to work together as a body to bring you glory and to take care of the most marginalized in our midst. Make us um, foot washers and grant us the discernment to be able to see those in our midst who are entrapped and ensnared by these groups. Have mercy on us, Lord Jesus, and thank you. And your son, we, we pray this, this prayer. Amen. Amen. Thank you, everybody. All right, everybody. We'll see you next time. Ciao. Bye.